0: Two actors performing two different versions of Macbeth in the same town. Fans are so passionate that at one performance, there's a riot and nearly 30 people are killed. You hear a story like that, and you can't help thinking, I'm sorry, there has to be more to it. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The story I just teased is surprisingly little known, even to people immersed in the world of Shakespeare. May 10th is the anniversary of the Astor Place Riot, the night in 1849 when fans of American actor Edwin Forrest rioted inside and outside New York's Astor Place Opera House during a performance by Forrest's rival, the British actor William Charles McCready. And whether or not you've heard the story before, it's one we could all know a lot better. Because, as you'll hear, many aspects of it continue to reverberate today. We brought together two experts on elements of 19th century American theater that have a direct bearing on the riot to talk about it. Carl Coppola's academic research focuses primarily on the performance of masculinity on the 19th century American stage. Heather Nathans has written about early American theater as well as the way immigrants and African Americans were depicted on the stage. Carl is an associate professor in the Department of Performing Arts at American University in Washington, and Heather is chair of the Department of Drama and Dance at Tufts University. We call this podcast his headstrong riot hath no curb. Heather and Carl are interviewed by Barbara Bogave.
1: One of the really interesting parts of this kind of half-known story is that back in the 19th century, around the time of this riot, violence wasn't all that unusual in the theater. And this is something I I didn't know. I mean, it wasn't like, which did you like better, Cats or Hamilton on Broadway? (laughs) These kinds of brawls maybe weren't as big or deadly as the Astor Place riot, but fistfights certainly happened a lot. Why don't, Heather, you remind us just how
2: disreputable theater was considered at the time. Sure. It's partly that theater is considered disreputable because actors sometimes have questionable reputations. That's more characteristic of the early theater in the post-revolutionary period. By the middle of the 19th century, it's actually growing in respectability, particularly with stars like Edwin Forrest. But it remains this very volatile, highly masculine space any little hint or whiff of something political or something connected to racial politics or class politics really sets off a powder keg in the theater. We've seen other riots where somebody brings, in the case in a Philadelphia theater, a raccoon on stage, which is the emblem of a political party, and everyone begins (laughs) screaming. And so even the most innocuous gesture can really set off an audience that is already very much on edge. And Carl, why don't
1: you pick up on that? The, and the audiences really, they were a rough crowd, right? 19th century, still genteel women didn't go to the theater, certainly not alone. Was the audience really made up basically of men and and, and prostitutes, as I've read?
3: Well, I, th- I think a lot of that decorum of audiences tended to be divided largely by class. Uh, right. Working class audiences tended to be far more boisterous and loud, whereas theaters that were catering more to... Um, kind of a middle class and the elite class, tended to be governed a little bit more by stricter social behavior.
2: There's a really famous painting of the Park Street Theater, which was one of the major New York theaters in the 18-teens, 20s, and 30s, that shows the pit and the boxes and then up in the galleries. And so what you see in the pit is it's entirely masculine. And then what you see in the box area are men and their wives. And then the galleries... Very famously, it's been chronicled, those are the sort of disreputable light women who are coming to troll for customers. But one of the other things that this particularly famous picture points out is the men in the pit would have largely known each other, which really underscores what a small theater community you had. So it's not like we go to the theater today and it's an anonymous audience. This is a community that actually knows each other, knows what their political stances are, and I think that contributes to the volatility as well. So riots and theater not that is really the
1: backdrop to Astor Place and this this beginning of a class separation and, and that wealthy patrons are bumping up against working class theatergoers. Finally, we have these two very different celebrity performers facing off. We have this this Brit, William Charles McCready, and and Edwin Forrest. So let's look at them one at a time. Carl can tell us about Edwin Forrest, who he was and what he was like on
3: stage. Forrest was a pretty extraordinary figure. He was the first great American actor. An astounding percentage of the theater reviews that cover his performance talk about the size of his biceps and his calf muscles. He also had a a loud, booming voice that reportedly would shake the rafters of the building. So he was not really into subtlety or... And he was frequently kind of criticized for a lack of spirituality um, and and nuance and intelligence within his performance. And while he was a a brilliant man, he he tended to focus on kind of the larger, grander, bigger theatrical choices. And while initially early on in his career, that kind of appealed across class lines, as we get deeper into the 1800s, it really starts to fragment a, a bit and I think we see more of um, him appealing even more strongly to working class audiences as opposed to more elite audiences.
1: And, And why was that?
3: Well, I think in many ways that Forrest represented, especially for working class men, who they aspired to be. Not only in his performances of Shakespeare, But Forrest also sponsored playwriting competitions, plays that were written specifically for him. And all of those plays, he played kind of a Republican hero, kind of somebody who came out of the commons and fought against an evil aristocracy and just through sheer force of will overcame all obstacles. He represented sort of this ideal of what the working class man could become.
1: Oh, interesting. So he's this kind of brawny He-Man, working class hero type figure, iconic Absolutely. figure.
3: What roles was he known for in Shakespeare? Uh, in Shakespeare, he was primarily known for roles like, oh, Macbeth and Lear, uh, Coriolanus. He d- did play Hamlet, though it was not considered to be one of his more successful roles, largely because it, it Hamlet being sort of indecisive was so working against who Forrest was as a person and as an actor. And so those were the primary Shakespearean roles uh, for which he was known. And Macbeth certainly was one of the great ones.
1: Heather, did Forrest uh, take many liberties with Shakespeare or did he he play it straight?
3: He took a lot of
2: liberties. So, for example, I've seen a a version of a prompt book of his Othello at the New York Public Library in their archives. And you can see that, that Forrest has gone through and just excised almost everyone else but him. So he's, he's made a lot of cuts so that... Really no, no
1: Desdemona?
2: Very little Desdemona. You know, why does she need to be talking? We all know she's going to get killed. And so he cuts the scene where Othello hits Desdemona. So he he really oh. trims down the part a lot. And they also give very explicit directions about how he looked on stage. So he played Othello as tawny rather than strictly black. He played him apparently in very gorgeous robes of purple with jewels. So even when he is playing a Shakespearean character, he is very much adjusting it to the kind of image that he has already created of himself. And... As Carl was mentioning, Macbeth becomes one of his famous roles, and the picture of him playing Macbeth, there's a very famous, I mean, he could not look more the man of action. His arm is up, his legs are straddled, he's heading off to do battle, and it's very much the antithesis of how MacReady is pictured playing Macbeth when he's just sort of standing there politely in a kilt. Hey, Carl, is, is is this how you
1: see them lining up? You know, you have this brawny, larger-than-life performer, the, the all-American guy. And was he in direct opposition to, to a more genteel, maybe less virile British style of leading man? Is there a subtext about masculinity and its place in American history here?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think there are There are kind of two dominant strains of acting that are happening during this time, and that really coincides with a class-based masculine behavior. Forrest is sort of emulating the great English actor Edmund Keen of every romantic school of acting. It's impulsive, it's passionate. Uh, The other side, um, MacReady's school of acting is kind of more of a, what would be termed kind of more of a classical style of acting, um, inspired by the British actor um, John Philip Kemble. And there, it's much more focused on elocution. While there's passion there, it's definitely always passion governed by intellect what we see in these two performers who are radically different generally in their performance and specifically in Macbeth, which they were both performing on the night of the riot, their interpretations of the roles also were radically different. Their audiences, Forrest's working class audience and MacReady's anglophilic middle and elite class audience, they also were embodying and admiring and applauding two radically different uh, masculine images. So one of strength and power and passion and impulse and the other one of passion but controlled by the intellect
1: i'm trying to g- think of a modern day analogy to compare these two performers and and maybe um forest sounds more to me like a summer blockbuster performance and macready more oh. like a like a, a subtle mumblecore indie maybe not mumblecore <laughs> heather <laughs> am i on the, any kind of right track there
2: You know, I would say Daniel Day-Lewis, right? If you think about Daniel Day-Lewis can be explosive when he needs to be, but there is always that immense intelligence and sense of control that's shaping his roles. And then on the flip side, you're right, someone who... I would absolutely say any yeah, blockbuster like, Someone
3: like, like Dwayne the Rock Johnson or <laughs> even if we go back a few years, somebody like Sylvester Stallone right. um, who could do more substantive acting but was – became known for being kind of this massive muscular presence.
1: Right. So, so Sylvester Stallone versus a method actor. That OK, that's vivid yeah. now. I get it. So you have these two very different performers. You have uh, class tensions, a powder keg there. And we already said that the audiences were rough at this time, but it sounds as if they were particularly rough for Forrest. Carl, is this true in, in New York where the riot took place? I, he had Astor Place takes is in a immigrant neighborhood primarily there, and and there were elements from the Five Points gang at the time?
3: Absolutely. Forrest's audience was very definitely a um, working-class audience. Also tended to be very anti-British and also largely anti-immigrant, although at the same time, Irish immigrants also were anti- British and also were um, huge fans of Forrest. And so you have the kind of the nativist Americans and the Irish immigrants who'd hated each other, but they could be joined together in their in their hatred of anything associated with the British.
2: And I actually have this pamphlet that I picked up at an antiquarian booksellers fair that was printed right after the riots that gives the account of the terrible and fatal riot. And it includes a list of the dead and how they're all killed, like shot through the lung, shot through the head. And I'm struck when I look at it at how many of the people killed were Irish. Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, how how high, though, did anti-British feeling run at this time, Heather? I mean, the War of 1812, it had happened, uh, you know, decades before at this point. So how fresh was that for theater-goers still in the 1840s? And what were Americans' feelings about Britain and the British by by
2: then? Sure. I. I don't know that it's specifically anti-British as much as it is a kind of elite opposition to a rising working class that is becoming increasingly urbanized and industrialized, that the cities are becoming these clusters of people who have been relocated from rural areas, plus anyone who's flooded in post-famine to a new working class population. And you have a city that really isn't equipped To handle a working class community that has access to alcohol, that doesn't have an effective police force to keep them down, that is not surprisingly resentful of an elite group of Americans who are telling them how they should behave and how they should be governed. That seems to me, again, a very combustible combination. And when you throw in something like McCready, who becomes the darling of a New York elite group that is trying to, as they perceive it, deny access to working class white Americans, then there is not surprisingly a kind of resentment that bubbles up and that seems like British versus U.S. rivalry, but I think is compounded of things that are much more complicated than just that. And these two performers, they had
1: a history, a rivalry that was played out on the boards, in the theater, also in the press. Um, Carl, tell us about that and, and the story about Forrest going to England and making trouble
3: at MacReady's performance. Uh, they have an interesting history, these two. Uh, Forrest heads over to, for the first time to England in 1836, and he is applauded uh, over in England because he really fulfills the expectations of what an American actor would be. He's this larger-than-life barbarian from the woods of, <laughs> of, of America. MacReady comes to America in 1843, and at this point, there, there are more tensions, and Forrest heads back to London in 1845, and the audiences, and especially the press, are not nearly as kind to him. He feels that MacReady is largely responsible for the negative response of the press, and Forrest starts following MacReady around. They will perform, he will find out what MacReady is performing and then he will do the same play at a theater across the street. Kind of this mano a mano masculine showdown of acting. (laughs) And eventually Forrest follows uh, MacReady to Scotland where he is performing Hamlet. There's a part when Hamlet is going to pretend to be crazy and he does this little dance with a handkerchief and there's a large hiss heard from the audience, and everybody turns around, and it's Forrest, this massive presence, who has hissed his fellow actor. And it really was the hiss heard round the world. The newspapers everywhere in the world are writing about this. And MacReady, in his private diary, is sort of talking about what a deplorable human being Forrest is and Forrest is kind of stoutly belligerently defending his Democratic right to express his disapproval of an actor's choice
1: wow so this rivalry we heated up over over years and years right and there was uh, there was an ensuing scandal McCready came back on a third and and last trip to America where
3: something got horrible got thrown at him on the on the stage uh, oh yeah a yeah, d- dead carcass of a sheep Um. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, that was fun, and they were, and <laughs> you know, on May seventh, uh, a couple of days before the riot, they they started throwing the chairs from the balcony. They were doing kind of these pre-curtain speeches to their audiences, which I think also fascinatingly uh, showed the differences between them. Forrest was sort of saying, "I did this, I did the hiss because I am a man and I can stand up for what I believe in," and McCready was saying, "I'm so uh, so sorry to." for all this trouble, and I will be seeking legal redress. (laughs) And it's this radically different sort of this public engagement of their of their personal feud, which is then spilling out into between their audiences, too. Well, you've brought us up
1: to the specific events that led to the actual riot on the 10th, where we're now at May 7th. You you said, uh, you know, three nights earlier, McCready is performing and and people are throwing um, chairs. And I read some account where people were also throwing rotten eggs, potatoes, apples, lemons, shoes, bottles of stinking liquid and ripped up seats. Uh, but Heather, did the performances persist at this time or did the show go
2: on? Well, that's the thing that astonishes me, that everyone knew this was coming, right? You, You could have predicted that May 10th was coming if you decided to go on. And yet, McCready's elite American supporters encourage him to go on, right? Carl can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think McCready was almost thinking like, I'm out of here, right? This isn't and they encourage oh,
3: yeah, him yeah. to keep going, yes? Yeah, absolutely. He, he, he was planning to leave the United States immediately and never come back. After the 7th,
1: and after his performance on the 7th, three nights after before the, the After May
3: 7th. And so these 47 prominent citizens, including Herman Melville and Washington Irving, signed a petition that went to the mayor saying, you need to protect this person.
1: And that persuaded him. And And is it at this point, Carl, that New York's mayor calls out the militia to keep the peace?
3: He does. Well, New York has a, a mayor that is sworn in May 8th, so he's brand new, uh, Woodhull. He is going to post police inside the theater. He's going to post another 125 police outside the theater. And then the National Guard is going to be basically standing and waiting about two blocks away in case anything bigger comes up.
1: And this is for McCready's performance of Macbeth on May 10th. What about the other side? How, what, what arms were they bearing?
3: Well, I I think the the, the odd, unfortunate circumstances that sort of conspired together uh, for May 10th was there was this large mound of paving stones that were supposed to be cleared away just outside the theater. And for some reason, uh, they weren't. And so... Largely, the people who were there at the riot didn't necessarily have weapons, mm-hmm. but they did find all of these loose paving stones and began to throw them at the theater and then at the police and then eventually at the National Guard um, who were there. So this was during the performance.
1: This kind of skirmishing was going on. At what point did, did the militia, because the militia opened fire into the crowd. At what point did that happen?
3: W- well, First, there's a disturbance within the theater itself. Um, a bunch of forest supporters have bought tickets and they cause a disturbance. The police inside the theater arrest them and um, lock them up in a room in the basement of the theater where they then, uh, the those supporters, uh, forest supporters, set fire to that room in the basement, which is not a very long-sighted plan on their part. <laughs>
1: Um. I was going to say <laughs> somebody's not using their noggin.
3: So there's so there's smoke and confusion inside the theater and a growing number of people outside the theater. The crowd that is gathered outside the theater, it's really difficult to know an exact number. It was estimated as somewhere between 10 and 24,000 people, some who are rioting, but a lot of people who are just kind of curious bystanders observing what's going on. So the National Guard is called in and they march in between the rioters and the theater. They are instructed to fire a warning shot, um, which they do, But then a rumor starts going back in the crowd that, oh, the National Guard is shooting blanks. And so there's a push from the crowd to go through the National Guard. And so then uh, the order is given out to fire into the crowd. Um, Some of the National Guard do that. Some of them, they disregard the order and they shoot directly over the heads of the crowd. But what that does is because of the nature of firearms at that time, the bullet goes over the top of the crowd and the bullet comes down and strikes people who are just observing in the back. Wow.
1: This is like like Kent State before Kent State.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
1: The final toll in dead and wounded?
3: I've read numbers anywhere from 25 to 31. But um, so somewhere in there, as far as the number of dead, the number of wounded was somewhere between 120 and 150, which included people in the crowd as well as police and National Guard.
1: I read somewhere that the dead were laid out in saloons and taverns for people to come to, for their loved ones to come to identify them.
2: Some are laid out in wherever they're carried afterwards. Some are laid out in the theater. Some die while they're being carried to the hospital. So, you know, as as Carl was suggesting, there's such pandemonium that there's no plan for what happens when it all goes so horribly awry.
1: So, Carl, yeah, because of the pandemonium, I hesitate to ask this question, but you have to. Who was to blame?
3: I think that really depends upon who you talk to. Certainly, the the working class papers are criticizing McCready for continuing to perform, criticize the elites who supported him, Criticized the mayor. Whereas, you know, more conservative, um, upper class newspapers are completely blaming Forrest for continuing to egg on his supporters and continuing to encourage this competition and sense of tension. Everybody uh, was blaming the press for their role in, they were selling a lot of newspapers by encouraging this competition. And so if, if I were now looking back on it blaming anything, I would say that the press probably did more to fuel that fire than anything else. And there's,
1: there's so many parallels we could talk about what's happening now. But I want to I want to keep this to, to Shakespeare. What consequences did, did the Shakespeare riot have for theater at the time? Which, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, it was already segmenting into upper and lower class tiers. Did Did this intensify that
2: evolution? I don't know that it. It necessarily pushed it in any direction it wasn't already going it certainly cements suspicion right it certainly makes it clear that these communities have very little in common and one of the interesting things that happens at the end of the, the pamphlet that was written about it is it it asks the question who's to blame and it says everyone so it's not going to take sides about the lower classes versus the elite It's that everyone has a share in what happened here and it doesn't actually propose any resolution and carl i don't know what your thoughts are but it's not like the theater suddenly turns into a different animal where everyone sort of gets together and sings kumbaya and we say oh no we need to have class reconciliation in the playhouse
3: no i i would say if anything In the long term, if you look at the long eighteen hundreds, I think that ultimately it's the middle class that wins. I think working class audiences more and more are expect the expectation is that they need to moderate their behavior. And so the working class male audience starts to find other entertainments. And I think that we start to get the theater that we really have now, where we go into a darkened auditorium and people know when it is appropriate to laugh and to applaud. But overall, we have become a much more passive, polite audience. And I think that that change in behavior really comes to a crisis in a head during the Ashter Place riot.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So you, you, you see that as more influential than just simple ticket prices rising.
3: Um, I think it's a combination of things that theater managers, I think this perhaps on some level might have formed some sort of a wake up call for them of, yes, we can, is this really worth the trouble? And there are theater entertainments that continue to appeal to the working class. But I think that as we move deeper and deeper into the 1800s, I think we see fewer and fewer working class people, especially drawn to Shakespeare. And I think that Shakespeare becomes increasingly um, an entertainment that is appealing more to an elite audience, I think.
1: Well, well, following up on that, and and maybe it's asking the question in a slightly – coming at it from a slightly different angle, what role did Shakespeare play in this Shakespeare riot story? Because this was a time, wasn't it, when you proved your cultural prowess by performing Shakespeare as well as the British – That was our calling card, a time of claiming Shakespeare as an American. Carl, why don't you take this one?
3: What we see that changes in in Shakespeare moving forward is who is observing Shakespeare does change. But also I think the style of performance also changes. Edwin Booth becomes the great Shakespearean actor of the kind of the second half of the 1800s. Um, And his is a much more cerebral intellectual style. I don't think we see the the American action hero performing Shakespeare on stage as being like a major cultural event anymore. I think that that is another change that happens in how Shakespeare is performed.
2: So a turning... I'm po- oh, sorry, go ahead, Heather. Well, I was going to say, by the middle of the 19th century, as Carl knows, you have people who are satirizing Forrest performance and writing takeoffs on his famous plays where they come out and mock his sort of ranting style and overly muscular appearance and so you can sense that it's almost going out of fashion
3: and and even toward the end of his career um he started to collect an almost exclusively working class audience but also one that was very nostalgic kind of looking back on oh this was when the american stage was really great back in forest day and so he really was almost performing i think a parody of himself by the time he got to the end of his career
1: Hmm. Well, taking a step back now from theater to this larger issue of, of class, we don't think of class riots or, or as happening all that much here, at least after the time of the rise of unions, say – so, where do you put Astor Place in the story of class conflict in this country? Do, do you see it as a as a one off, a product of this unique combustion of British American tensions and theater and this rivalry between these two guys, and as well as class, or or do you see it, you know, center stage as part of an ongoing history that extends even into modern day class conflict in America?
2: Oh, I would absolutely extend it into modern day. I mean, I hope we don't see that kind of cataclysmic violence anytime soon again, but it seems impossible to argue that we don't have tremendous class divisions in this country and populations that feel disenfranchised and overlooked and are in search of a muscular, ranting, hyper-masculine hero who claims (laughs) that he's speaking for them.
3: For instance. Uh, Yeah, I I think that was one of the big takeaways from the 2016 elections was this, I think, somewhat disingenuous uh, um, dawning that, oh, my goodness, we have a disconnect between kind of the middle of the country and these coastal elites. And if we look at the difference between our last two presidents, you see two radically different masculine figures um, who are appealing to completely different people and that we have different segments of the population who either view them as a hero or as a villain. And I think that that fragmentation of society based upon class and class mixed up with all sorts of other things at the same time is something that that certainly continues.
2: You could not extrapolate what happens in the Astor riot from thinking about race, from thinking about immigration, from thinking about issues of gender. I, I don't think you can look at Astor Place and say it's only class any more than you can look around at what's happening today and say, oh, well, this is only a, a white class tension issue. You have to look at everything else that is colliding to to bring these forces together. Absolutely. Well, we could talk about this uh, for, for weeks, I bet. But I, th- I want to thank you both so
1: much. It's been really interesting. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Also, Heather.
0: Oh, no, thank you. Oh, thanks so much. It was great. Heather Nathans is chair of the Department of Drama and Dance at Tufts University in Boston. Carl Coppola is an associate professor in the Department of Performing Arts at American University in Washington. They were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. His Headstrong Riot Hath No Curb was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. Shakespeare Unlimited podcasts are edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had production help from Ian Fox and Alex Brownstein at the PRX Podcast Garage in Boston, and Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquart at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. I'd like to ask you a favor. Can you take a moment to rate and review Shakespeare Unlimited on iTunes or Google Play or whatever platform you get this podcast from? It helps us connect with new listeners. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website Folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.